Nicola Morgan is an international speaker and award-winning author for and about teenagers. She has written nearly 100 books, including novels such as Flesh Market and Mondays Are Red, but more recently has become increasingly well-known for her passionate factual work on adolescence, with Blame My Brain, The Amazing Teenage Brain Revealed, and The Teenage Guide to Stress, being seminal titles for teenagers and the adults who work with and care about them. Her next book is called Be Resilient, How to Build a Strong Teenage Mind for Tough Times. And Nicola spoke recently to Nikki Gamble, who asked her why she'd made the transition from fiction to non-fiction. I will, I hope, get back to fiction one day. But for the last 11 years, I've been writing exclusively non-fiction and exclusively on teenage well-being topics. But that stemmed from the book Blame My Brain, which I wrote in 2005. So there was a time when I was doing both things. So I wrote Blame My Brain in 2005 because there was brand new research. And because I wrote fiction for teenagers, my editor said, is there any non-fiction you'd like to write? And I said, I said, well, yes, actually. And I'd just come across this stuff on the teenage brain. Can I write about that? Because nobody else had. So I did that. And then there was a gap between then and 2013 when my next book on this topic came out, which was The Teenage Guide to Stress. And the reason that happened, which is really what then grew into all of the other books that I've done since then, was that I was sometimes being asked into schools to talk about the brain and sometimes to talk about fiction. And it became quickly apparent that when schools were asking me to come in and to talk about the brain, which they were suddenly doing more, even though the book had been published quite a few years before, they were also saying, and can you add in something about teenage stress? Because we're noticing that our students are under stress. And that seems really obvious now, but then it wasn't. And because I was there at the beginning, it, it kind of became my topic. And I became more and more fascinated in it and more and more keen to do what I could to help because all of the stuff in all of these books is what I recognize now I needed to know at that age because my mental health wasn't very good at all and I sometimes still struggle to keep on top of anxieties and things like that but I have the skills now and so it's the, it's those things that I know if I'd known them at the time I would have had an easier and better and more productive youth and so I'm wanting to help help young people so that's really why it is and there's so much to talk about that I don't have time to write the fiction anymore. I did read in uh, your introduction to uh, the latest book um, about some of the anxieties I think we probably grew up at a similar time so you talk about the sort of anxiety of the cold war and for me I remember the Cuban missile crisis and then all the threats of nuclear war but I do think that these things weren't spoken about directly to me. It was just this notion of this threat. Whereas I think today, young people can't actually ex escape the detail. Do you think that's a difference? Y yes, absolutely. So, um, so I was born in 1961. So the fear of, of nuclear was, was real at the time. But we would only hear that information either just hearing other adults talking about it or if we were watching the six o'clock news or something we would hear it once a day at the most whereas now as I think you're suggesting because of online there's this constant bombardment of often because that's what news is like negative scary stories that have often happened far away and often or even usually 
don't actually, if you looked at it, raise your risk level, your personal risk level, or change your life very much at all. But there's this constant fear of them. And if you go back hundreds of thousands of years to when our brains were built to feel anxious, when we heard anxious making stories, something like someone in the next village has been eaten by a lion. So it were, and that was genuinely um, raising your risk level and you should be anxious about it because if you weren't and you just wander around, you might be eaten by the lion as well. So anxiety is there to make us react to negative stories in a way to keep us safe. But nowadays, all the negative stories that we hear, almost all of them are not actually going to raise our risk levels, but they are equally raising our anxiety levels. And so young people, they don't have as many years of life experience to teach them how to put those anxieties into a small space in their head instead of making them be big and overwhelming. Mm. And that's a really interesting um, answer that you've given there that reflects, I think, very well the tone of this book, which is all about balance. And it is all about keeping things in perspective. And uh, one of the words that I put down here is that you really champion the agency of teenagers. You make it clear that they can affect change in their own lives. Yes, absolutely. And the phrase active agency is one that I often use when I when I, I do talks in schools and conferences and things. Very often, and for quite obvious reasons, when you think about it, young people feel that they have no active agency because they've had their whole lives up to this point with adults telling them what to do. And so they can easily get into a state of mind where they think they can't control anything in their lives. And often emotions feel very hard to control. And sometimes they are hard to control. But if you start to learn that we can't control everything, no one can and no one ever will, but we can all control more than we think we can. And that very much includes um, teenagers. Mm -hmm. And the more things you can discover that you can control, even a bit, um, the more confident you feel in yourself and your ability to have a, a better and more balanced um, and more positive life. Mm, great word, that control, because uh, so much I think of the teenage years from my perspective of being a teacher um, is about seeking to gain control over your own life in a strange situation where in school is the one place that you don't have really any control. Yeah, no, exactly. And at the same time as all of that, the teachers and the parents are trying to tell the teenagers to be more in control. And yet at the same time, not seeming as though they're allowing that control. So there's this struggle between adults and teenagers often between who's going to have more control. Um, and there's a sometimes a lack of thought by adults about what they are doing when they try to control too much. What they're doing potentially is creating learned helplessness. You're potentially creating teenagers who don't know how to control their lives or their emotions or their or their fears or whatever. Yeah. Uh, coming to um, be resilient now, uh, one of the things that I noticed when I um, read it was how it seemed to bring together so many of the things that you've written about in the teenage brain, your book about friendship, your, your book about sleep, a lot of these things are pulled together um, and seem to be so important for making us our resilient selves. Yes, it's really interesting that you notice that because I had only just a few days ago thought exactly the same thing. 
that really all of my books are about resilience, but that word is hardly mentioned in them. And it seems as though all the other books are some ingredients of resilience, but this book pulls them all together. And um, I don't know, I hesitate to say that you only need to buy one of my books, but maybe <laughs> if you were only going to buy one of my books, maybe, maybe this should be the one. So for example, The Awesome Power of Sleep, which was the one that was published earlier this year. Of course, there's lots of advice about how to sleep better, but there's also lots of science about what sleep is and what it does to you. Whereas with this book, Be Resilient, it's 99% how to be resilient rather than what resilience is. I mean, there's a Mm -hmm. bit about what resilience is, but most of it is how to bring it all together. And it does include sleeping well and looking after your stress levels and your aspects of mental health and everything. So yes, it does. I think it does pull everything together um, really neatly. Mm. You you divide the book into five main sections because it's trying to get some order into what is sometimes quite a confusing area. You know, we've got branches of well-being and mental health and there were happiness studies you know which seem to have you know they're going out of fashion a little bit now because we it's not all about being happy um and so you're trying to put some order into this uh landscape and you've come up with five areas I would quite like to talk about each of those I think in turn so the first one is all about the importance of social networks tell us a bit about that Yes, well, it's the first thing that people need. And it's also quite a practical thing. You know, there are there are practical things that you can do to build your support network. And I think if you're launching into working out how you can improve your resilience, which sounds like a big and abstract thing, and particularly if you're doing it at times like this, which are difficult times, and you might be feeling quite, quite vulnerable, and your res- resilience might be quite harmed or lowered by having whatever you've had to go through dealing with the pandemic for example it seemed like that the first thing and most helpful and obvious thing would be to look at who can support you and to understand that you don't have to do this alone there's no you don't get extra prizes for doing it on your own it's not it's not like that resilience is not better or more admirable when you've done something completely by yourself yes you need to be be leading it and be active and as we said be an active agent but nobody has to do it on their own and in fact if you try to do it on your own you probably will miss opportunities you know we none of us is an island and we're not meant to be islands we're social creatures and we tend to do better when we have our community our network but then it's really important as well to realise that that doesn't mean you've got to have lots of friends. You shouldn't count your friends in number, but you should be able to count on them. So the book that I've written that is about that it specifically is The Teenage Guide to Friends. Um, and that's a very popular book, particularly with younger teenagers, because the idea that you don't that you feel you don't fit in or that your friendship group is crumbling or, or that you, you've had an argument with a friend or you can't make a good friend or you don't think you're popular, those are really, really really powerful, um, mentally overwhelming worries that young people have. So it seemed that having that, building your support network, looking to see who your team are, some little activities so that you can actually see that even if you think you don't fit in, you have got plenty of supporters out there. That seemed like a nice, practical and supportive way to, to get started on the topic. It seems to me that one of the most tricky aspects of building a social network uh, is 
around the idea of trust and the difference between being trusting and overly cynical. Yes. And I don't think there's a magic answer to that. I think you do definitely have to have a balance. And and I, I talk in the book about how you can trust too much and you can trust too little. And how can you start to make good judgments? And we'll, everyone gets it wrong sometimes. But how do you get better at that? Perhaps we could talk about the second section in your book, which is all about uh, developing skills. And this is where you talk quite a lot about the growth mindset. One of the things in particular that I was interested in was this idea of developing your skills by watching and learning from others. I thought that was really interesting. Yes. So I talk about growth mindset, that the way we learn is by practicing. The more we do something, um, the better we get at it. Although it's not quite as simple as that because you've got to be practicing it correctly and you've got to have been taught correctly. So you've got to keep you've got to have good teaching and you've got to keep learning and listening and uh, revisiting the practice if, if it's not going so right. But one of the ways that we grow the connections in our brain that allow us to become better at something is by watching someone else do it. And that applies mostly, to be honest, to physical skills. So when you're a sports teacher or your musical instrument teacher demonstrates physically how you hold something or how you do something or how you move your feet or your arms or whatever as you watch them do it your brain itself is starting using by using the type of neurons called mirror neurons your brain effectively practices the thing before you physically do it yourself so um that doesn't happen so well with more abstract actions and emotional actions but nevertheless when you see somebody be wise or sensible or self-controlled you will then start to think about what they're doing and think about how you might do that and you start to um, use empathy to put yourself in someone else's shoes which is why role models are so important and why it's so much harder for somebody a young person who hasn't got good role models whether that's in their family or friends around them you know we we do tend to imitate to some extent the behaviors and the emotional behaviors of the people around us and so we find it easier to do most things if we have good role models helping us. Do you think reading can be a role model for those abstract ideas? Definitely. And we mustn't make the mistake, and some people do make this mistake, of thinking that only fiction can improve empathy. Non-fiction stories, true stories of people going through something can do that job equally well. But um, also non-narrative non-fiction. So books like mine, books that have not got fiction in them or narrative in them at all but are showing you other ways that people might be they can definitely help provide role models for you as well so absolutely books are windows into the lives of infinite numbers of people because most of us in our actual lives don't engage with huge number of very different people we often are mostly engaging with people who are in many ways, quite like us. And books allow us opportunities to see a far more diverse range of experiences and lives and opinions and ways of doing things than, than um, real life can usually give us. Yeah. 
Well, there's so much more in every section. We're not going to have the opportunity to talk in detail about each of them. But the good news is that people can read the book to discover more. So we will move on to section three, which is about coping strategies. Tell us a bit about that. Yes. So we're all programmed as humans to avoid pain or danger or negative things or things that that make us sad. So there is a tendency for us to do things that make us feel better, whether it's having a piece of chocolate, going for a run or whatever. So we will automatically do certain things to make us feel better. But some of those things have short-term gains because they make us feel better, but long-term disadvantages. So just a small example is biting your fingernails. People who do it say that it doesn't make them feel very good, but there's a little there's a little benefit. They do it because it calms their stress. But the long-term effect is that they're unhappy with themselves for doing it because they don't like the look of their fingernails. Now, that's quite a trivial example. But another example, and And one thing we haven't mentioned is that in the book, in each chapter, I start off with some imaginary situations or imaginary characters, young people with certain situations going on in their families and how they um, respond. And in this chapter about coping strategies, um, there's a character in the beginning and his parents, he notices, will have a drink or two or possibly three. I'm not saying that they're drinking far too much, but they are using alcohol. And I think one of them using tobacco, smoking cigarettes as coping strategies. And those are negative coping strategies. They make you feel good for a little while. But afterwards, if you do it too much, then you're going to have some um, negative consequences. So that's why it's really important and quite empowering to know that there are actions that we take intuitively to make ourselves feel better. And that some of those things are positive and have long-term benefits and some of them are negative because they have long-term negative consequences Mm. and noticing the difference noticing when you're doing a negative one and trying to find ways to break those habits it's always about habit and once you see the habit that you're doing that's your starting point to being able to break it Mm. interesting and you give us some short and some long strategies But one of the things that didn't appear on your list that I use, and I was interested to know what you think about it, is the use of television. I'm surprised I haven't mentioned, I didn't mention it because certainly when I'm doing talks, one of the things that I do is get people to realise that there are two quite different ways that you might be feeling stressed and therefore two quite different types of activity that you might need. So you might be feeling physically anxious, your breathing is too high, your heart rate is too fast, etc. You need something to calm you down. Or you might have a big worry on your mind. And those two things become very obviously different when you think about the fact that for the first one, the feeling generally agitated and breathing too shallow, etc. If you did things like lying on the grass, having a bath, going for a gentle walk, just sitting on a, on a seat in the sun, those things would do a really good job. But they wouldn't do a good job if the problem for you was you had a big worry on your mind. If you have a big worry on your mind, you need something that engages more of your brain. And watching television is an example of that. So watching television or a film, playing computer games, or watching sport, watching or playing sport, anything that requires your concentration and engages you. But there are some negative aspects to watching television one is that you 
can sometimes do it for too long, a little bit like playing computer games. And also, if you do it late at night, there are some reasons why it's not the best strategy for relaxing you because of the lights, the, the bright lights and movement and things like that. The next section is called Build Your Courage. Uh, this was a fascinating chapter. All the research about lucky people and unlucky people. That's amazing, isn't it? I know, you know, you, you think that luck is just that, pure luck, but there is evidence that you can affect your luck in some ways. But I have to caution with that message because I don't want people to think that that means that people who are lucky in general and have big thing, lucky things happen to them have done something special to make that happen. And people who are unlucky have done something bad to make that happen. That is absolutely not the case. Luck is generally that just that luck. It's not something that you can control. But um, that research that you're referring to suggests that if you do things like keeping your eyes open, taking opportunities when they're offered to you, then you create more opportunities for lucky things to happen to you. You know, if you stay in your house and, and don't engage with opportunities and you don't kind of take risks of going for auditioning for things or whatever, then you know, those pieces of luck uh, won't come your way or are, are less likely to come your way. Um, and just that idea gives you some empowerment, which is why it taps into courage, because mm. it gives you some optimism. This is not to say that we should all go through life jumping around positively and thinking that every good thing can happen to us and we can do anything. That's not optimism. That's that's ridiculous, over the top, unrealistic positivity. But being optimistic and positive and believing in yourself, then that gives you the courage to go for whatever it is. Mm, really, really interesting and very important uh, chapter, I felt, as indeed is the last one, which is about building your future. And what I really appreciated in this chapter uh, is that it's not about having your future mapped out, because I feel that we do that to young people too much. Yes, definitely. And we do the opposite. We create barriers as well, whether it's adults creating barriers for young people by suggesting that that's not a career for them, they're not good at that, or it's young people doing it to themselves and saying, oh, I couldn't do that. I, I don't have the right, the right skills. So it's not about mapping it out because the world is changing so fast that who knows in any case what opportunities there are going to be in 10 years time or even five years time for, for young people at school at the moment. It's, you know, things change all the time. So you don't have to have a strong idea of what you want to be and you can make mistakes and get things wrong. And the chapter, as you'll remember, has suggestions about how you can know yourself and what you think might suit you. So keeping your options open, but at the same time, being true to yourself and what you think what you think matters to you and the sort of person you want to be. I have to say that throughout the book, I, I think you're very good at guarding against what might be your own prejudices as to what a good life should be. Thank you. I mean, that is certainly what I think. I very much see the risks in having too narrow or too difficult targets. And at the same time, also recognising that we need every variety of person. We need people of 
all different sorts and everyone is equally important and everyone's view of what they see a successful life as being is really important. And I don't blame schools for this, but too much about school is about measuring you against certain quite rigid criteria. This is a good thing to want to be and this is not such a good thing to want to be. And this is what how we're going to measure you. We're going to have prizes for this, this and this. And we're not going to have prizes for your know, teamwork or all of those other things that are really important in all of us working together as those social humans that I mentioned at the beginning that we are. Mm. I started by mentioning that you'd been a writer of fiction and that you've moved to writing non-fiction. But actually, as I was reading it, I could see the fiction writer in there, um, in the way that you engage your reader. Do you think that you still carry some of that with you when you write these books? I don't know. I, I would like to think so. But I have worried in the last few years, every time I think about how I would like to go back to writing fiction, I have worried that that bit of my brain is withered and the neurons and the connections have almost, they won't completely disappear, but that they have become so weakened through lack of use, which is what happens when we don't use particular parts of our brain. There's that use it or lose it concept, which is absolutely what happens. So I certainly think I would have to practice quite a lot, which is why it hasn't happened. But if you can see some fiction still in my books, then I'm very happy to hear that. You know, just the introduction, your use of metaphor and your intense interest in language. Yeah, no, th- thank you for that, because that, that, that absolutely is, is correct. And yes, the metaphors, so the, the one you're referring to, which I think is such a good metaphor for resilience, which is the idea that we are the little boat sailing on it. And our job is, if it's been battered by a storm, then we need to use that calm time after the storm to do repairs, food and our diet and our sleep and exercise and relaxation. That's where all of all of that comes into it. Mm. And also that we can't control or predict the storms and the weather, but all we can do is make ourselves as strong as possible to sail through them. And most importantly, to be able to enjoy the sunny days that don't have storms on them. Because if you're constantly worrying about a, a bad thing coming along, then you're not enjoying, you're not living, you're not living the life that you are meant to, to live. And that message is to me as, as much as it is to anybody, because I, I might sound as though I'm, do, I'm good at doing those things, but I'm not really. I'm just constantly, constantly trying to teach myself these things while I'm teaching young people. Well, Nicola, we've sailed full circle in our boat today around your five sections and around being resilient And it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time to pop into the Reading Corner today. It was lovely to be there. Thank you so much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.